Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon and welcome back to the second half of Mexico Moving Forward 2012 Symposium. And we'll continue with our third session called Lending and Selling to the Poor. We also have an audience that is joining us um, via the internet, and we want to remind them to please go ahead and continue sending your questions to our panelists at usmexucsd um, at twitter.com or via email at mmf2012 at ucsd.edu. We have a great panel ahead, and again, talking about lending and selling to the poor. And just to get set up what this panel is about, according to official statistics, Mexico has 11.7 million people living under extreme poverty, and almost half live under moderate poverty, which means they are lacking the necessary income to purchase their basic needs and do not have access to many basic services. Having the poor as clients is challenging because those who live in poverty must make very careful decisions on how they will allocate their limited resources. Nonetheless, Mexican firms have succeeded even in environmental situations where regulation and structural conditions are very adverse for business. We'll explore in this session some of the challenges faced by world-class companies that sell and lend to the poor. So on our panel, first, Carlos Danel is Executive Vice President and co-founder of Banco Compartamos, Latin America's largest for-profit microfinance bank and the first institution of its kind to issue an IPO valued at nearly $2 billion. And we also have Gabriel Lagos, a Sustainability Coordinator of Casas Geo, a company committed to developing sustainable communities, reflecting human aesthetic with features that promote social well-being and to improve the quality of life of individuals. And we have Joel Suarez Aldana, CEO of Gruma, the most globalized food company in Mexico and the worldwide leader in corn, flour, and tortilla production. So welcome to our panelists. And we'll go ahead and start with Carlos first. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to start off thanking UCSD for the invitation, Alberto and Manuel, for having us here. And uh, thank you very much for your time here and your interest. Um, certainly, the question behind this event, how to keep Mexico moving forward, is uh, quite compelling and quite challenging. Um, let me maybe start by having you visualize or imagine this. So you got up this morning, you came over here to this conference and essentially registered, got your badge, got a bag. And all of a sudden, when you try to enter this room, you were denied access for whatever reason. You just couldn't get in. You try to work your way through that, no success, you turn around, you leave. You kind of leave with a sense of you're missing something, right? You know, you'd hope to learn something, you'd hope to engage and talk with people, but you leave with a sense of loss, with a sense that an opportunity was missed. Imagine that 
this happens every day. Every day of your life. You try to seize an opportunity, it's not there. It's not there for you. It might be there for others, but it's not there for you. Unfortunately, for many, many years, that has been the life of many, many millions of Mexicans. For different reasons, people have been excluded. Excluded socially, financially. Excluded from access to quality products and services like healthcare, very basic stuff like housing, education. And, and one, of course, can ask, you know, why is this? And, and, and I think it's a very complex answer. There are many, many things going on at the same time that make it so. Some of them have been spoken about here. Might be some you know, conscious or unconscious bias in our culture. It might be that there are significant vested interests in our society and in our economy that, you know, some people perceive or some group of people perceive that it is best to keep other groups excluded. Best in their own interest, I guess. Even as Santiago was saying, you know, even the excluded sometimes find incentives perverse incentives in our society to perpetuate their own exclusion. So, clearly, if one thinks about what has kept Mexico of moving forward, and if one thinks that poverty, one of the explanations or one of the underlying causes in poverty is that exclusion, then one must think of inclusion as a potential solution. So, given that context, I grew up in a Mexico where traditionally we thought that this problem of poverty and this problem of exclusion was really a government problem, right? It was a state's role to deal with this. And we essentially lived in kind of a bipolar Mexico where you know, we knew that was happening or we know that's happening, but, you know, that's somebody else's responsibility. And at some point even, you know, it's either the state or maybe, you know, institutions like the church who has a great tradition in trying to alleviate those sorts of problems. But certainly, I mean, a very, I would say, inactive, passive civil society that thinks that this is somebody else's problem. But for a group of friends, you know, going, uh, finishing high school, you know, and starting college and thinking about our future careers, this kind of didn't sound right to us. I mean, we thought that there was something deeply wrong with this, with the fact that we thought that somebody else was responsible and somebody else had to do something about it. And of course, back then, and even today, there were no easy answers and you know, no quick fixes. And, and we really didn't know where the solutions were. But what we did decide to do was to act. So, as volunteers, we started an NGO in Oaxaca and Chiapas that essentially concentrated in doing two things. One was you know, nutrition, uh, and the other one was rural health care. And very fast, we were very frustrated. And those of you that have been in those sorts of Social development fields from civil society know what I'm talking about. Because 
In many ways, what really was very frustrating was that we spent 80% of our time fundraising and convincing people why this was worth doing. And maybe, you know, in the best of cases, 20% of our time actually doing something about it. So one actually was very frustrated because we thought, you know, we could do so much more, but, but it, was, it, was, it, was, it was just difficult, right? And at that time, from the nutrition program, we had a relationship with USAID, who then suggested that we look at, you know, other places in Central America and in Asia where people were actually implementing microfinance programs. We didn't really know what, you know, microfinance was or even finance. I mean, I was, a, I was and I am a architecture major. Uh, you know, the other co-founder is, a, is an engineer, and, and, and the group, you know, there was no banker or no finance type. And, you know, curiously enough, 22 years after that, there still aren't any bankers or financiers in Compartamos, which I guess is a good thing. But, uh, but anyways, we, we set out to look at it. And, and, and we, we visited, you know, Grameen Bank, very famous in Bangladesh. We visited Finca in El Salvador and in other places. And, and the first thing that struck us was that, you know, potentially there was a way to alleviate the frustration that we were getting. We saw that, you know, there was huge demand from self-employed, you know, micro-entrepreneurs, people that had very simple income-generating activities uh, that needed capital to grow and couldn't find it. And not only that, but we saw this as, back then, Grameen was already an institution that had close to a million clients, and we were just blown away by the scale. We were very obsessed with scale because we really wanted to build something that was meaningful within the Mexican context. So we kind of got a glimpse of this concept of using business or commercial principles to help solve social problems. And the fact that our families were, you know, had a background in, in private sector, business, and, and, you know, we were actually starting our careers and, and studying to be in, in that space. We said, you know, this, this might be something worthwhile pursuing. So we set up Compartamos. And what was at first our night job, uh, very quickly and unexpectedly became our day job. And, you know, it eventually evolved to what it is, a, what it, what, what's a company that has a very strong culture and a very clear sense of purpose. Uh, we say Compartamos' purpose, actually, is that through financial inclusion uh, to the base of the pyramid in the Americas, we want to create three types of value. Social value, economic value, and human value. Now, what do we mean by social value? Well, there's an underlying assumption that access to financial services, a place to save, a place to get money for, education, housing, business, a place to cover yourself for, through or for some shocks like microinsurance, and a place to actually transact and do payments, you know, access to financial services is better than non-access. And go back again to my reflection on, on exclusion. We found that traditional banks were not willing to serve this segment of the population because they thought pretty much they were unbankable. Uh, so we defined social value for us as trying to 
provide access to financial services to as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time. So really a big drive for growth. And to do it, not just for access itself, but to do it in an environment or building an environment where actually where clients, through client protection systems and financial literacy, could benefit from these financial products. Because you know, we all know that you know, financial products have their dark side, especially debt. So they can be misused. So one of the core things about access was, yes, access, but in a way that can be useful for people. Then economic value. And again, that's probably better defined already in your minds. But to us, it was about creating a profitable, sound company where the capital markets and the private sector could invest and could provide a means for growth and for permanence and to create an industry. And finally, human value is a third bottom line. And this one is even, you know, it's, it's a bit more exceptional, I would say, than the other two. And very particular to the kind of culture and identity and DNA in Compartamos. Because I think everything of what we do starts from the point of thinking that the individual, that people, have both the ability, the willingness of being better people, of growing. So we, we like to say that we believe in people and in their ability to be better and to grow. So we try to provide an environment and we try to provide a place both for our staff as well for our clients, investors, and every stakeholder where people can grow. Um, so we set up Compartamos uh, back in the early 90s. And, and, and to be honest, we, we kind of got you know, off to a slow start. Uh, in the you know in the first years, of course, we had been able to develop the product. We knew how to lend. We knew how to collect. We even started you know building the back office, the backbone of this company, so that it could grow uh, to start even you know even behaving like a financial institution, building bridges with regulators and with different actors. But we got off to a slow start in the sense that in the first decade of our existence, we went from zero to 64,000 clients. That's, that was all we, we could actually serve. And even though we'd done all that, uh, you know, one of the main restrictions for our growth was not different from what was happening in, the, in, our lives, in the lives of our clients, which was we ourselves didn't have much access to funding. And, you know, in the core of that problem was the fact that in a middle-income country like Mexico, where there wasn't a large you know, uh, international cooperation or even donor community, uh, you know, accessing, you know, the capital uh, required us to speak the language of the market, right? And we couldn't. We were an NGO. We couldn't actually engage in a business-like transaction with, with whoever could fund us. So by the end of the 90s, we thought that it was, a, it was, it was worth pursuing converting our operation into a formal financial institution. First as a finance company, eventually as a bank. It's a regulated bank. And, and you know, you can imagine the face on the regulators the first time we showed up and, uh, you know, we essentially asked to, it was a regulated, uh, you know, activity, so we wanted a license to do 
a finance company to lend, you know, do unsecured lending to rural women in Mexico for very tiny amounts of, of, of loans. Uh, and none of us had any clue what, you know, banking was about, I mean, at least formally. So it took us a while to actually, you know, talk to people and have them understand that at the end of the day, our goal wasn't and still is not to provide a loan or a savings account or an, or an insurance product. What we wanted to do is, again, to provide financial inclusion and opportunities for growth for those who didn't have them in Mexico, which we thought was crucial. So we kept at it, and I think not because we were very articulate by it, but because we were very just insistent, they finally allowed us to set up the finance company. And then the next 10, the next 10 years, the next decade, was totally different in terms of growth. Whereas we had grown 60,000 clients in the first decade, the second decade we grew more than 2 million clients. And it was the ability not only to build a company with everything that entails and with a very clear sense of purpose, but also uh, you know, the ability to tap into the capital markets. We were the first company, microfinance company in the world, to actually issue a public bond to mainstream, regular in- institutional investors, and then, uh, again, converted into a bank in the year 2006, and then went public in the year 2007. So clearly, a growth story uh, in that second decade. Uh, today, Compartamos is actually a group of companies. Actually, Compartamos is a holding company of a group of companies um, that work in three different countries, Mexico, Guatemala, and Peru, mostly Mexico, and uh, through microfinance, either finance companies or banks, and a couple of other subsidiaries that uh, deal with microinsurance products as well as payments, and also a foundation of the group. Uh, We have uh, just over 16,000 employees, full-time employees in Compartamos, uh, again, in these three countries, with multiple products, uh, with what has become a much more sophisticated operation, uh, just over a billion dollars in assets. And like has been mentioned, uh, we're a publicly traded company in the Mexican Bolsa. And uh, so clearly growth and, again, our ability to have those whose uh, doors had been shut uh, to start opening and to start including them, and specifically to provide, uh, to provide financial inclusion. Now, we still have plenty of challenges, and there are you know, significant questions you know, outlying. Compartamos in itself, and this whole idea of using business or commercial principles to help solve social problems is a controversial, it's a, it's a difficult, sometimes, thesis to grasp. In, in, in the core of this controversy, I think, is the fact that for many of us, you know, doing well and doing good are two different things. And even though we, we speak a lot about it, in practice, we really struggle with the fact that you know, in having institutional mainstream investors and social ventures I think, creates this suspicion that they might damage the mission or the sense of purpose of the 
these institutions. And clearly, I think, we still don't understand fully the role of prophets as a source of growth and of building industries. There's clearly, I mean, for anyone, I think it's obvious to understand that if you're using commercial and business principles, and profit is one of them, uh, there's an immediate role of profits, which is to reward the owners of capital. But that in itself, I think, distracts from another very important social role of profits, which is not only to fuel growth, but also to attract others to build industries. Uh, And there are many, many examples of this. I mean, if you think about the Internet and all the services that you and I have today and probably take for granted even on a smartphone, at some, you know, before the Internet existed, there were a few pioneers that actually started, you know, the very basic first services through the web. And it was probably the result of the large and very visible windfalls of a few of these pioneers that others came in and started competing and started being creative about what kinds of products and services we could use online. And today we have what we have. So it is, in many ways, nothing new. It's the same way that many industries have been built, but we thought, And again, Compartamos has always had not only the immediate goal of building a company, a social company, but really of trying or helping, contributing to build a larger industry in which people will come and compete and provide multiple products and services to the clients. And, And one way of doing that is to, in a way, show that there is, to the private sector, you know, over average profits in starting up an industry. And, and, and it's not only about attracting capital. It's also about attracting talent. So I think partly that process is well underway in terms of financial inclusion in Mexico. So whereas 22 years ago, a client of Compartamos had very few to none choices of who they could go for their financial needs in a formal way. Today... They have plenty of choices. Today, if you go to Mexico and you walk the streets of any of these towns, rural, suburban, and even urban Mexico, you will find that, you know, in any given community, there's a host of different institutions, actually over a thousand different institutions of all shapes and types, you know, be it, you know, co-ops, credit unions, banks, finance companies, NGOs, all kinds of different entities competing to serve uh, the financial needs of what used to be the underserved or the unserved. So in many ways, again, I think in Compartamos, we are certainly proud of what we've built as a company, but that, has, that, that, that really pales in comparison about the pride that we get of having contributed to building a larger you know, financial inclusion industry. But we have a problem. See, whereas many, many years ago I told you we were frustrated because we spent so much time fundraising, today we're still frustrated. And we're still frustrated because after many, many years we'll still realize that even though financial inclusion is so important, it's just a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's not enough, clearly. 
I mean, there are many things, like I started out saying, where the underserved or the excluded need to be included. Political, politically, socially, and in many, many other ways. So, in a complex reality, when all that has to happen, you know, we've kept asking ourselves, what else can we do? And, and again, Compartamos is and will focus on providing financial inclusion in Mexico and now in other places in Latin America. But it got to even the point that, you know, because we were frustrated that people were actually demanding and could use access to, you know, health care, uh, agriculture services, uh, infrastructure, clean water, uh, education, all sorts of different, different services and products. We then set up a different, you know, parallel effort with an impact investment fund that some of you might know is named IGNIA, also uh, based, in, well, based in Monterrey. And uh, what IGNIA does is basically an impact investment fund that invests in social entrepreneurship in all these areas. So we've invested in uh, agriculture, housing, education, uh, healthcare, uh, clean water, among other things. And the whole idea behind it being, again, to try to create this model of social entrepreneurship where there is an explicit you know, intent and goal of building social value and at the same time building economic value. And the challenge is big. You know, we, we, we're, we, I think we're at a better point than we were before. And I think it's good news that Mexico, in many ways, not only recognizes the huge inequalities that we have, but we're willing to do something about it. Now, I will just end by saying that you know, the model of social enterprise by no means is a silver bullet. You know, it has, like anything else, its limits, and it's also its unintended consequences that one has to deal with. So it's by no means, and, and, and again, after 20 years, we've come to realize very clearly that in these complex issues, there are no silver bullets. There is no cookie-cutter approach. But what we do think it is, is again, it's a tool. It's a tool within a toolbox that hopefully can contribute to get Mexico moving forward. And again, back in the early 90s when we were students, we were wondering, you know, what is the solution to the problems? And we probably still don't have a full answer. But we have engaged, we have done things, and we encourage others to do so. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. Gabriel Lagos? Good afternoon. Uh, I'm very glad and honored to be here to share some of the experience of the company that I represent. This company is Casas Geo. I'm going to try to share some of the experience we have building social housing, sustainable social housing. I will explain why for the bottom of the pyramid. But first of all, I will tell you who is Casas Geo. Casas Geo is a company that has been here for 38 years. We're building around 60,000 houses per year. The average cost of the house is $17,000. Today, nearly 2.3 million people is living in a Casa Geo. And this is non-government-owned largest social housing company in the world. And it's in Mexico. Why I think some of the answers of why are we building so many homes 
and we will be building so many homes is because humankind species is growing really fast. By 1950, there were around 80 cities with more than a million people. In less than 50 years, there were already 365 cities with more than a million people. And we're expecting that by 2025, there will be nearly 500 cities with more than a million people. So we're facing in this century the greatest growth on human population and the greatest growth in cities. It's just not because of the population is growing, it's also because the population is moving to the cities. So what I think is uh, that we have to be really extraordinary. We have to be fantastic building cities. If we want to enjoy, if we want to have water, if we want to preserve the energy, most of this energy, land, will be consumed in these new cities. So we really have to improve the way we make cities. Who has the greatest challenge of building cities? Uh, unfortunately, the developing countries. The developing countries are the ones that have to take the most of this challenge because they have the greatest growth. So this makes it a little bit harder. The rest of the countries, the developed countries, they, grow, they, they did grow, but they did it slower. And now we'll have to do this on a fast track. I'm going to try to explain some of the considerations of growing uh, in a wrong way. What happens if we don't do it this properly? First of all, the new housing complex uh, in many times, especially Asia, South America, Africa, uh, are bigger than the pre-existing community. Try to imagine these as humans. I understand it much easier that way. You have a human, and then your new neighbor is bigger than you. He came, and you don't know him. You don't share the culture that he has. You don't share his traditions. He was not invited, and he came to your house. He's bigger than you. He will consume more water than you. He will put more traffic than you. He will take your resources, your policeman. He will take your uh, cemetery, your church, uh, every single service that you have been building by generations. And all the people that you're around with, you know each other. And this new guy that just came, that is stronger and that is bigger, you don't know him. This will definitely create some conflicts. This will put some pressure to the system. And the government that is attending these things it doesn't have either the capacity to face it. They cannot uh, grow in size in less than three years by double. Uh, this is happening around 37,000 people will move to a new community in less than three years. This is the, the expected rate of growth that has been going for almost 20 years. So uh, these are the consequences of this issue. First of all, the thing that I was telling you, it will be a cultural clash. Uh, when, when you have two societies and you can easily identify the difference between one society and the other society, uh, it's easier to create friction. Uh, this happens with, with the color of the skin. If you, have, you can easily see how they dress one from the other or how they look one from the other. Or you can see the building and you know this is all the new people that came from aboard. It's easier to create the friction because it's easier to identify. 
uh, these people that came from abroad. So this increases the risk of creating a cultural clash. These people that just arrived, this new guy, uh, even its constitution is heterogenic on the people that they came. Uh, there are people from many, many different places. They don't belong even together. And the only thing they share is they have a really low income. And the other thing they share is a place would live. If you were a sociologist, this is the perfect storm. You have many people, no social tissue, they moved fast, they came to a new community, they are getting friction with one community to another. And the difference between humans and communities is if we fight as humans, we will fight for one week, one month, and then we get bored and we get friends again. If we do it by families, okay, maybe 10 years. But if we do it in communities, it will take centuries uh, to, to, to bring down this conflict. So it's much more dangerous. And this will make the social tissue to the composture. Uh, this will increase the violence. People will start abandoning their houses. And they will stop paying the mortgage. They will make the access for housing even harder. So I just tried to give a facts picture of what happens if you don't do it on the right way. What happens if you don't do it on a sustainable way? We de have definitely done this in every sector for some years, but now it's getting a little bit more itchy. We are more people, and we definitely have to change the way we do things. We have this reflection in the company, uh, and we're completely sure that any company that wants to sell a product today, the product has to be good in a deep way. It has to be good for the society, for the client, on a long-term relation. It has to be good for the government. It has to be good for the company. That, it means, is sustainable. We'll have to take care of the resources, of the economics, and the social environment. So this is the vision of the company. We're trying to create not housing. We don't want to make houses. We want to make sustainable communities. I will explain what we understand for that. Uh, this is how we see the business. We see some of our competitors uh, understanding the business as building and selling homes. The product they sell is a home, and they start fighting for the price. We, on the other side, we're looking and we're seeking, and I think everybody's almost following a little bit, and this is fastly increasing, uh, the product that we sell is we really want to make something that improves the life of the customer on a long-term relation. And to do this, we need a sustainable community. And we don't have to give the cheapest price. It has to be affordable. Otherwise, it's just a dream. It has to be affordable. Uh, but uh, the product is different, and the customer will understand. This is the hard part. I'll try to explain the solution. It's quite complex, and we just have some minutes, but I hope you understand. So the first part of the solution is easy. We cannot go to a new community and rest. We cannot take resources. We have to add. Bresna, subtract. We cannot subtract resources. We, cannot, we have to add, add things to the new community. What happens if instead of building these walls, we take out the wall and we put a park. What if we put a soccer court and we put them to play together? How is the relation changing? What if we put a hospital? What if we increase the amount of uh, ways of transportation on the locality? What if, before even starting building, 
we go to the community and we find out what they have been dreaming of. Maybe they have been dreaming for a soccer court forever. And that will be very easy for us to add to the community and we start with the right step. And we also have to need what do they need because sometimes they want something and they need the other thing. So we take very carefully considerations on infrastructure. I put the word hardware for you to understand what do we mean for the infrastructure. But hardware is not enough. And that took us some more years to understand. You can put a fantastic hardware. It's like if you put all these university, you need the teachers. You need a good course. Otherwise, this place will die. The, the DNA of this university is on the people that live there. And if the, cult, the software, the culture, the people that you have there, it works, it will even improve the hardware that you build. I will try to explain it in a different way. If you come to my house and you see plenty of bottles of alcohol, you don't know me, and you think everything is a trash and everything is very messy, you can have some conclusions on how I live, what do I like, how is my life. If you can instead and you see plenty of books, everything is ordered, there are books, pens, and papers, you can think of my life. So there is a strong, strong relation on the infrastructure that you see with the culture. You can see it in a town, you can see it in a city, you can see it in a country. And one will enrich or will subtract from the other. If you have a fantastic school with very good teachers, many students will come, you will have more resources, and the university starts to grow. If you do it the other opposite way, it will affect you. And also, if you have fantastic installations, people will like to work in your installations. So we have to work in both sides. Uh, the harder part is the cultural, the software one. This, I will come back, 37,000 people moving in less than three years. This never happened in history. It, it went slower. There were families. They know each other. There is a huge complex net supporting the society. Then they will come, each one in their own little houses. And they feel apart, they feel afraid, and they don't feel they know each other. It's very unlikely that if we put a football court, we already did, and they will start playing football. That's what we expected. And we waited, and suddenly became a strong guy and took some drugs. A little kid wanted to play football. He could cut the ball. Then they started a gang. But that's only the infrastructure. But if you put a teacher to teach them how to play football, you put classes, you put the ball, you have football teams. When we started doing this, we had 80 football teams in less than three months. They were eager to play football. And if everybody's playing football, then the guy that wants to take some more drugs, he will say, well, I'm not going to do it alone, so I have to play football. And you start inducing the culture. We have a fantastic and unique moment when we create new communities. And that's, I think, the biggest thing I want to share. When, when you change to a school and you come to the classroom and you don't know anybody, you feel a little bit weak. You don't feel a network that will support you. And you want to mess up with the class. And then 10 people stand up and say, hey, you don't mess here. Either you behave this way or you go. That happens to people that move to a new city, to a new community, to a new school. They have a period of adaptation and they will be open for just some time to change any habit. That's why we have all the brands behind us. 
please give them my shampoo, please give them my uh, soap, my soup, because they know that if they change brand, they will stick with a new brand. There is only one window. And I think when the snail goes in one way, it's very hard to make it go the other way. So you start one track, it will go, it will go, it will go, uh, and you can induce that to be the right track. But you have to start at the beginning. If everything became a mess, then the mess becomes more a mess. I hope I explained myself. <laughs> but it's very important to induce the culture in the right moment, to induce new habits. And it's not us to tell which are the habits. What we do, we, we bring all the people together, we put them in a room. We were not able to have this meeting if we didn't have this infrastructure. If we were in the street with the sun, maybe some rain, this wouldn't happen. So we have to create spaces for people to meet. So we do that. We create community centers. And we make the space, we put the people, and we just put the rules. We believe in two things. First thing is nobody else in Earth knows more about yourself than yourself. I know if I like my sweater, if I feel itchy, if I'm hungry, if I'm bored, if I'm happy. Nobody else knows. Not even Sigmund Freud, after 10 years of exploring yourself, he will know. He will not know who you are. The people that knows the most is yourself. So the community is expert on the community. There are no other experts. And the other thing we believe is you are the only person with the means to take you from one position to the other. And the third one that it goes around is that we will go. So we better teach them how to to growth, to get stronger, and to face challenges, because there will be many. So that's all the cultural program that we build on community centers. And the other is the infrastructure program. And, okay, let's close at this a little bit more. We want to guarantee that in every single community we have those 10 things. The first thing is the harder one, is the software. All that little family, we call it Vida Comunitaria, Communitary Life. We need to have education, basic education to high education. We'll need to have fantastic public space. I'll explain you why. We have to have access to the basic things that we will need to buy on a very cheap price. Otherwise, it doesn't work. They don't have the money. They need to have a house, that's for sure. Shelter is a basic need, and we're good at that. We need to increase the way people move in different ways, sustainable mobility. We need to have uh, water, energy, security, health, and uh, work. But if we only put this like that, it would not work. And I will finish with this. We have to put it in a very uh, intelligent way. The first thing to make a community work is they need a heart. People like to see people. That's the thing we enjoy the most. When you go to a holiday, you want to sit on the plaza, have a beer or maybe a coffee, see the other people around, and start sharing experience with other people. You don't want to be alone. Private space will never be enough. Not, it doesn't matter if I give you 40, 50, or 100 square meters. You want to go out of your house and enjoy the city. If there is not a meeting place and you put intelligence of putting a right meeting place, the community will end. The second thing we learned, and it was very important, is if you go to Oaxaca, to Chiapas, to San Diego, you want it to smell, taste, and feel like Chiapas. Uh, so in order to make this new community 
belongs to the other community, we have to understand that community. Which are the leaders on this community? Which is the history of this community? Which is the natural value? Which are the uh, architectural uh, experiences they have? Because we will have to take this and bring it to the new community. We have to take exactly the same parties that they are celebrating. We are coming to their house, and we have to behave in their house. And then this new development will enrich the pre-existing context. It's not another one. It, it, it does belong. It has an open door. It added value. It added equipment. It added equation, health, and it does belong to the same. It talk about my grandfather. He built that little thing, and the name of the street is the name of my grandfather. And that brings community together. We also have to make connections, emotionally connections. Many people live here. They don't go to the sea very often, but they live on the coast. And, and we need a football team. Humans need to belong. And if we give them, you see the other pictures, 9,000 houses, the same color in squares, who would like to live there? Who wants to belong to the house? 380,000 uh, on the macro. No, no, no. I want my little street with number 25, and I want my own colors, and I want my own identity. And we have to make it these grow bigger and bigger. For the first block of houses, I don't know how I'm in time, it's around 60 houses, and we bring them to a very intimate space. Then when we build 400, 500 houses, we call this a barrio, and we'd also put a heart into the barrio, and all the families will play with small children in the barrio. And we have a group of barrios, then we make a colonia, and the colonia knows itself by its colonia. It's like a football team. It's like your school. They, they will try to be better than the other colonia. And this makes every colonia a better colonia. You cannot take care of everything. No? It's like, uh, let's clean the world. No, no, no. I will clean my street. And probably I work in my city. But I cannot clean the world. So we're bringing this to more uh, a bigger human scale. Then we learned... To, that we need more dense cities. I think this is a lesson that is going worldwide. It's also happening here in the States. We have very little amount of earth, and we really have to take care of it. We have to improve the use of earth in order to have green areas, to have parks, to have places where we can grow food, and to have homes. When we're increasing the density, I will give you just a number, by 2010, we were building 6% of our homes on a vertical way. By 2011, 40% of our homes were in a vertical way. And we're probably achieving 65% this year. We do need to make transfer cities. That makes uh, life more enjoyable, more productive, uh, less energy, less maintenance of streets and whatever. And the last thing is we have to increase the way we use the energy by isolation, water heating systems, and fantastic public space. This is uh, the way we think uh, we have to improve. And this fantastic public space has to do with many things. We don't want to see grass everywhere. We're in the middle of the desert and we have grass. This is crazy. This has to stop. Grass is from England. It rains all day long. It's beautiful to see the grass in England. If I want to go to the desert, I want to see a spectacle of cactus. I want to see an explosion of cactus with sand in the middle of the desert. It has to taste as a desert. And this is a much more sustainable way. And when we start doing this, even the birds of the region start coming. And it just 
works. When things are right, everything starts matching. And that's about it. I just want to share some pictures so you get a clue of what is these community centers. They do really work really fine. These are our schools. We're really making first-class schools. You have to give really good schools, really good public space. I'm very sad. sorry about that grass. This is a <laughs> commerce. These are the houses, also with these water heating systems. We're getting really into uh, cycling roads. Actually, we are the largest cycling roads builders in Mexico. We have built more than the government of the biggest five cities together. We're really building biking roads, and we give away bikes. If we give the infrastructure and we put the bike, the culture starts, and people is biking. Only 6% of our customers have the, enough money to have a car. So it's crazy to build huge roads when everybody's uh, jumping on the only car that is going 100 kilometers. We also are building uh, healthcare facilities, and we try to build capacity and a connection to the employment. So that, this is the little baby first steps towards sustainable communities. We do understand it's a long road. I think humanity is just starting to realize the impact and the road that we have ahead. But this is the effort we're making. Thank you very much. And our third panelist, Joel Suarez Aldana. Okay. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for inviting me here, Carlos, and really to be here. Uh, last night, we were talking about, uh, about the name of, uh, the, the, uh, of uh, this event. And we were talking about how we as Mexicans really feel and don't promote ourselves. And we were precisely with Carlos and Rodrigo, we were talking about comparison to Brazil. We were talking about last night about Brazil. Now, when I saw this morning that the comparison with the statistics with Brazil, I mean, we are not really doing that bad, you know, in, in, in Mexico. But we are really, we as a Mexican are very critical of ourselves. And we need to promote more of what we're doing. What, what I'm going to talk to, to, uh, today to you is about Gruma. Gruma is a Grupo Maseca, which is a very... Uh, uh, a Grupo Maseca is uh, the one that converts the tortilla, you know, the corn flowers. We are a tortilla company. Every time that I cross uh, the border and I go to the, uh, to the immigration and say, where do you work? I work making tortillas. They just start laughing. They say, yeah, I do make tortillas. Uh, uh, what kind of tortillas? Mission food. Oh, yeah, mission food. Well, those mission food tortillas are really our tortillas, and that is a Mexican company. So, and we are very proud to be in here. Here, uh, just to give you the first thing, who do we are? We consider ourselves one of the most globalized Mexican companies in Mexico, obviously. Uh, just to give a perspective, we are indisputable, the, the, the world leader in corn flour, and, and tortilla production. Just to give you the tortilla production here in the United States, we produce 100 and, 102 million tortillas a day. And in a year, you just, we produce over 30 billion tortillas a day here. Here in the United States, we do have 22 plants that make tortillas, and we do have 6 million plants that make the corn flour. So we have been here in the United States for 40 years. It's not only that we, are, we have been in the United States. 
So we really consider ourselves that we are, now we are really going into the wheat flour and other base products, such as flat press and state products. And just to give you a, uh, where, where are we are right now, we do have 99 plants around the world. We have in America, Europe, Asia, Oceania, and more, and we employ more than 20,000 employers. Uh, we are present, our product is present in 113 countries with global brands like Maseca and Mission, and other local, level brand, uh, local uh, leader brands like Guerrero. Guerrero is also a brand of uh, the group of, of Maseca. In 2011, we sold $4.5 billion dollars we grew 26% over last year, and we're expecting to grow another 26%, so we probably will be reaching the $5.5 billion worldwide. If you look at it here, we are in the United States, obviously. We, we are in Mexico, obviously. And we, in the United States, we are in Central America, we're in Venezuela, we're in Europe. In Europe, we're in London, we're in Holland, we're in Italy. And also we are in the milling company, we are in, in, in Italy, we are in Ukraine, we are in Turkey, and we are we probably very close to going to Poland. So, and also we are in China, and we are in Australia, and we are also in uh, Taiwan. So uh, this is a very global company, and which I am proud to be part of that. I have been with the company for 25 years. And really, this is a very, very good company. Anyway, I don't want to go talk about very elaborate and very technical about the vision, mission, values, and business strategy and total quality. I just want to talk about briefly the vision. Really, the founder of this company is Don Roberto Gonzalez Barrera. The company has been founded 63 years ago. Really started in Mexico. He started with his father. He's fighting just, uh, just by, by uh, looking at, they wanted to modernize the, really, the production of the tortilla. The, the tortilla was, uh, it is done, as a matter of fact, uh, licks that you cook the corn, and you have a lot of problems of using waters and waste and all that. So they, what they thought is really to make a corn flour, to make it in a more mass production with a very high quality. Whenever they initiate that, we also develop the technology. We were talking about this morning about how the technology, we produce our own technology, the milling, the, the milling technology, we also produce that technology. And we also advance and produce the, the, tortilla, the, the tortilla machines too. So we are uh, vertically integrated. I mean, we do have the technology, we do have the corn flour, and we have the commercial part of, of the tortillas. So really the vision, the vision of the owner has been evolving. And really, the vision of the owner and the founder is to be part of every meal location in every country in which we are in. That really is the vision. If you look at, it, if you look at the previous map, the only continent in which we are not is in Africa. And probably we, and that has been his dream, that has been his vision, and that's where we're going to be venturing for next year to really go into Africa. And with that, we will accomplish that we are really the tortilla is in every part of the world. And that's what he really, that's his vision, that's what he really meant to do it, and that's what we're getting into it. The, uh, the mission, really, they are very simple. You know, very simple, we do have, we need, we need to provide a very, very good quality product. 
quality product with the best service and the best price that we can offer, not only to our customers, but also to our, to our, uh, to our uh, providers and, 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 to the, and to the middlemen. So those are the three, the three main things of, of our vision. And the volumes, the volumes is really of our funding, which is the philosophy of funder. We were talking about this morning, Santiago was talking about this morning, about how the Mexicans are, that they're a very hard worker. Well, one of the main values that we have, that's an effort. We call it the effort. Really, we are a very hard-working people in, in the company. And it starts with the owner. We practically, just like the salespeople sell, uh, say, well, we work 24-7, you know. I used to be a financial guy. I said, well, we don't work 24-7. We only work 7-11. So, so, so that's, that's a debate between that. But the only point that we want to talk about is that really that we are very, very dedicated and hard worker people. We also have the second one is the commitment. The commitment and the engagement that you need to have. And it starts one more time with the owner. We, you need, really need to be committed to this. If you look at the organization in Gruma Corporation, is if you ask the people how many years they have been in the company, you can build centuries and centuries of, uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of people working. Whenever people start working in Gruma, they, they love it and they like it. I started, I was a financial guy before, and I... And I started working with this company 25 years ago, and I'm still here, and I love it with that. Because really, the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to really reach every part of the world, and the opportunity to really develop yourself has been uh, really great. And not only with myself, but with every part of the, con- of every part of the organization that is working with it, you know, there are really people with a lot of passion into it. So the other thing is the business strategy. Every time that we go to a country, Really, we adapt to the, just like everybody else is saying, we adapt to the circumstances. We have been going, for example, here when we entered the United States about 40 years ago, we entered by buying a, a little company here in, in, in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, later on, uh, whenever we enter, uh, we enter Europe, we did not enter buying anything. We really built a company there because there was a need to really to teach the people what it was the tortilla all about. We were selling, and we were selling not only to the retailers, we were, we were co-packing to people, especially the, in, in England, which we had three plants in England. No, I'm sorry, two plants in England. Um, we sold about uh, more than $150 million in there a year. So you will imagine in, Indi- in, in England that they buy, yeah, they, they buy the wraps. You know, they, it is a big flour tortilla in which they put a lot of stuff inside. It's, they sell it cold. I don't like it because I like more hot, but... That's the way they're used to that. They're very practical people, but that really, England is the sandwich, the king, the sandwich, you know, and they are using that as a substitute of, uh, of, of the sandwich, and that's an opportunity for us to really grow there. So we do have uh, two plants, and we are really going to be increasing another plant, you know, because really the demand is growing tremendously. So really, the strategy has been different in every country in which we are. When we went to China, we also built a plant. When we went to Australia, we bought a plant, and then we built a plant. So, and we, uh, we do a lot of research before, like everybody else doing it, and also adapt our model into that. But one thing that we really, really uh, put in a lot of emphasis is the selection of the people that we put into the organization. That is a key ingredient for our success of our company. 
they have to have that passion, that commitment, and that effort, and that perseverance to really to be working for this company. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, two months ago, or no, three weeks ago, it was named Himsa, which is the milling company in Mexico, was uh, named the best place to work in Mexico. The company was Himsa, which is our one of the, the milling company it is in Mexico. That was the, the, the award that we got this year. So and we are also emphasizing a lot of the total quality of our product. The quality is the number one. That really what is, makes the difference in the, in, in the whole thing. We are really very focused about the quality of our products. How do we face uh, the current situation? Whenever there is a crisis, we were talking about uh, last night in, uh, in, in the dinner, really we are in the industry, which is a, uh, what is it they call it, a depression, uh, recession uh, resistant, you know. Whenever there is a recession, whenever there is an economic crisis, that is an opportunity. People have to eat, and hopefully they can eat tortillas, and those are very cheap, and that's what the opportunity really is to really grow into that, and we adapt them into that. So whenever there is a crisis, there is really an opportunity to even grow further into that. As you look at it, you know, last year we grew 26%. I mean, who will imagine in that financial crisis, you know, to, to be growing 26%? And we are really also looking for this year to be growing another 26% because that's an opportunity to really be growing into that. Why? Because, they, well, people don't have a lot of money and they are more, uh, they, they don't have, and so they are looking for about, uh, alternative products. And that's where we came in. We, can, we have been developing a lot of products that we adapt to really to the needs of what is the consumer. And we can classify the consumer as the Hispanic consumer, the Anglo consumer, and what do they, and what do they buy, and we adapt it into that. One of the things that we are finding out, for example, here in the United States, for example, the Hispanic, what they call the Hispanic, uh, the Hispanic uh, uh, population really has changed dramatically. The Hispanic population is more culturized. So they, what does that mean? They mean that they use less corn tortilla and they produce more, uh, I mean, and they buy more flour tortilla because they are more culturized. Whenever there's people coming from Mexico, they obviously, they eat more, a lot of more corn-based products. And that's what we are really monitoring that and we are adapting and developing new products to be really targeted to those, to those customers. Now, this is what I have been saying, that whenever there is a crisis, we have been uh, opportunities. And one of the biggest things that we are, we are constantly innovation. Innovation, that's part of it. That's part of our success into that. We are also constantly adapting. We have really, the Maseca, who we, now, now where you, that there is a lot of people that they need to be more healthy products and all that, we can add some more whole uh, 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 whole grain, we can add whole grain, we can add some vitamins, we can add that. So really we are adapting a lot of what the needs are and we are also looking for what is the best, the best product for the, for the population. We have also, you know, the wraps, the paninas, the paninas with us are really mainly in, in, in the European, in the European size. We also are producing nans, pitas and all that. We are really entering and evolving more to a more, uh, we are evolving more Instead of being a, a tortilla company, we want to be really a more multicultural food, starting from the tortilla, for the roll, for the rolls, and from the dessert. You know, we are easily looking also for the dessert, to, especially for the children. Uh, the Hispanic population in the United States has been growing. 
but really they have been growing and they have been younger and younger because there are more people born in here in the United States that are Hispanic than the people that are coming from Mexico. And that really has really changed. And that's what our biggest opportunity that we can be working with the roles and desserts. And that's a big opportunity that we can have. So uh, the other thing is that we are finding, and we are finding it last year. You will never imagine. These are the uses. This is the corn. It's a gluten-free product, which is a very healthy uh, attribute that we can have. We can, uh, we can use it uh, to, to make cornflakes, to be polenta, which we make it in, in, there in Europe, and beer. Uh, excluded snacks and pellets, and then the tortilla chips. It's not only the corn with the tortillas, it's, it's all with this, all this that we can really develop. In, with this corn, we can really develop all these products. We are really focusing right now in the beer, in the beer industry, uh, especially in Europe and the Eastern Europe. In the Eastern Europe, they are using a lot of the corn in order to really make beer. So that is a, one of the biggest opportunities. We just recently, last year, we bought a, 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 a corn mill in Turkey. Uh, and we are the re- the reason that we bought it is the high the the highest the best technology that that is available to make uh, grits uh, grits for that's the grits that in which you can make the the beer, and also we are really that uh, exporting it from Turkey to the to the Middle East. So we also bought uh, an, uh, two years ago we bought another in, in Ukraine, and we are also we just bought another one uh, in, in in Russia a, a tortilla company in Russia. So really, this is one of the biggest uh, opportunities that we have is in our beer, especially in the European and the Asia and Australia. And that's what we are developing also a lot. Okay. And the other thing is we are really putting a lot into our brands. We really have a, a, a brand equity, Maseca. I think uh, we, have doing, we have been doing a lot of research, and every time that we put the Maseca, the Maseca brand, it has a lot of brand equity. And that really has opened the door, and really it started all, all the way to Mexico. You know, really is, it really did not start in the United States. It really that from Mexico. And in here in the United States, what we have been developing is the Mission brand, which has been extended not only in the United States, but throughout the world. We also exported that brand into Mexico and to Central America, and also to European and the Asia, and uh, we also have exported that brand of mission foods. The other thing that is important is the technology. Last uh, year, we were in a market tour here in San Diego. We went to a very high Hispanic area that is here in San Diego, which is the City of Heights, I think. City of Heights, right? City of Heights? City Heights, yeah, City Heights, which 95% is all Hispanics. And out of that, 85% are coming from really Mexico. So what we found in the radius, in the radius of, uh, of uh, one mile, we found 60 tortillerias. And they all make nistamal. They're cooked in a very old, you know, very the traditional way with a lot of waste water and all that. So what we are really now, one, we want to put a tortilleria to really a state-of-the-art tortilleria. So whenever we went to the, uh, to the authorities to get permission to get the, 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 the permit to get the tortilleria, when we came in, hey, we came here to, uh, to 
put it in tortillería, when they say, oh, no, another one. No, we don't want you anymore. Because of the problems that are causing with the pollution and the water and all that. So, wait a minute, we don't use that. We use uh, maseca. We use the corn flour. I said, oh, okay. Then they gave us that permission. So one of the things is that we don't want to really get away or compete with those tortilleros, the 60 tortilleros. What we want them to really use is the corn flour in order to make the tortilla. And what we are going to be putting is a, a, a tortilleria, which we're going to be calling, which is a new concept. We're going to call it Casa del Maiz, which is the house of the corn, which we're going to be putting, uh, we're going to be putting a lot of products that are related to the corn. And it's going to be around in the... Uh, we're going to be opening it in June 14. Now I'm doing advertising, yeah, uh, here. June 14, uh, we're going to be opening, hopefully. Hopefully we got all the permits in check. Uh, but the whole idea is to really show the people that it's a very high-quality product that really, and it has a lot of, a lot of benefits for the, for the environment. And it is a very, and you can really modernize, really, the, the, the tortilla industry. Every time that we, you hear about the tortilla industry, oh, how, how do they make it, you know? But they never realize that really we can make it in a very high uh, state-of-the-art uh, process of production. And one of the things that we also want to do is just to demonstrate to those tortilleros that they can use the corn flour. And not only that, we're going to help them really to finance, to finance uh, uh, talking about financing and all that, we we're going to be financing that our own machines to make, the, the, to make the, the tortillas. Because we also produce the machines, so we're going to be doing a program in order to convert or to, or to use those people that use nixtamal to really use corn flour. And we are going to be doing that, helping them to develop and to, to have their own, their own business. You know, you realize 60 tortillerias, say, well, 60 tortillerias, how much do they sell? Do you know how much do they sell on average each tortilleria of those? Two to three million dollars a year. There is one tortilleria that is in uh, Avenue, and the 15, something like that, it's called, I think, La Princesa or something like that. They sell about eight million dollars. And they all use it next amount. So there is a huge market in which we can convert to use flour. And it is with the, with, the, with the technology that we have, and everybody wins. You know, we sell more flour, we sell more machines, and they have a much better, a much better product. And also, every time that we talk to the tortilleros, the first thing they say, I know that I can make a better, no, that, I can, that I can produce, to, talking about productivity about this morning, I can produce more tortillas if I use corn flour than in this amount. So if you really help us out into that, we are really willing to change. And you will see, well, the difference between, uh, you will say, well, but nixtamal is better because it's a more natural and all that. That's really not true. Uh, one of the things that we are finding, there is a, a big supermarket, a Spanish supermarket, is called a super. And they have been in-store tortillerias. And they have, 50, they have about 50 stores. Out of that, half of them use uh, corn flour, and the other half, they use nixtamal. And when I talk, you know, why do you don't, now with the prices of the corn that are very high, due to the, especially to the, to the, uh, the ethanol, which really, really, they're using a lot of the corn for the, for the ethanol, so really the price is just skyrocket. So the opportunity to, re, it's cheaper really using the, the corn flour than to buy the, the, the corn themselves. So that is the biggest opportunity that we have. And one of the things that El Super was telling us, our best 
in-store tortillería that they have, they sell it with maseca or with the corn flour. It's really not the difference between what is an istamal and what is a flour. It is as good. I'm not saying that it's better, but it's as good as it's an istamal and it is good with the corn flour. And on top of that is with all the benefits that we have with the, uh, with the technology that we can provide and to the environment. We also have been producing in the million, in the, in the million, uh, in the million process, we just developed a new technology where we can use a lot of less water. We, we use a lot of water too, but whenever we use the water, we use that water to irrigate the agricultural fields. Now we are using now less, less water in order to preserve the water. You know, now water has become a big business. You know, before it was practically free. Now it is a big business in water. So you have to really conserve the water. So we are really also working into that, develop the technology and also to be more, more environmentally friendly. And the other thing is the human resources, like I was saying before. I think one of the biggest assets that, uh, that the Gruma Corporation has is, is really the people. And it started all the way from the founder. I think that culture of passion, of hard work, and commitment, and perseverance is really within all the employees of, of, of the company. So, and we are also very committed to the, to, the, to the commitment of quality, the internal transparency, the people development, and a open organization. And when I talk about open organization, it's really that concept of Casa del Maiz. We really brought that concept from Mexico. We went a trip to Mexico and we saw what they were doing and said, hey, we can do that in here in the States and we can adapt it. So really we are as, as advantaged within our own selves, whatever is developed in another country, which is different, we can also copy and do it ourselves internally. And that really, that gives us a, a, a lot of, a lot of synergies in where we can be using. And just to finish, well, the Gruma community, we are really, we are really for, to a better future. You know, we have a new technologies, new products, new businesses, new distribution channels, and new ways of using our products. We are evolving. We started with the tortilla, with the corn tortilla. We're evolving with the, with the, with the corn-based products and then with the wheat-based products. And now we are also... We are also into the business of distributing uh, other products, so like salsas. And so we want to really have a, a, a portfolio in which we can generate value. And really, uh, we are also paying attention to what are the consumer and the market trends. We know that we have been saying the people is really getting older, and people is getting aging. I mean, they, they live longer, and they need, uh, they need a, a special kind of products. But also, we also have there is another type of... Uh, of people, especially the Spanish that is coming, that is younger, that is different, that they consume different products. So we also monitor that and adapting our products to those, to those consumers. And with that, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. All the information that you gave today was just eye-opening and intriguing, and I know that there's probably people that are joining us on the internet that have some questions, but we don't have time for a whole lot of questions, so we'll ask the audience here first. Does anybody have any pressing questions? You, there's one, an E. Okay, we'll do one Twitter, and then we'll take one from the audience, okay? This is your E question. Um, this goes to Gabriel. Um, how are you coping between an open community housing development 
and the way to provide security to the community. And you did have your little security logo there. Yes. I think is exactly the approach. When you put fences, when you put walls, when you divide communities, you make them unsafe. Uh, when you open the community and you work on the, sec uh, on the social tissue, you provide security. Security is something that we have to provide all, is responsible of all. And the other approach to security is on the design. Uh, very simple solutions. You don't want to walk next to a wall. If you walk to a wall, they will climb the wall and they will hide behind the wall. Nobody will be noticing that they are robbering or making something. If you take out the wall, it's transparent and there will be passive uh, surveillance. Uh, that's, and the third part of the approach is we are building uh, with the community uh, maintenance uh, companies. We know that the government will not be able to provide uh, the maintenance of the plants and the place and security. So we build these with the community with very, very little cost on the customer, so they will have some surveillance. Okay. I, hope I, I know I... there's probably some questions. Take a couple questions. Maybe. Okay, can we pass her a microphone? Yeah. <coughs> My question is for Carlos. I am wondering what your average interest rate is and how that compares to nonprofit finance organizations or microfinance and their rates. Yes. Um, we have a... Uh, what we call a differential pricing structure, which uh, basically relates to the cost of lending. So it has to do mostly with risk and uh, the actual operating cost. So uh, interest rates range between essentially on an effective APR, you know, annual interest rate between 50 and 60 percent. The smaller the, the loan amount, the higher the interest rate tends to be, which is... Uh, Typical, you know, in microfinance or in banking for that matter. I mean, one of the things that we struggle a lot with in terms of costing in microfinance is, just to give you very simple figures, uh, to process a loan throughout a year. And that, you know, entails both the acquisition of the client, the marketing, you know, going out to the client, evaluating, dispersing, collecting every single week, going back, doing that about three times a year. So it's have, you know, high touch, high relationship kind of methodology. We do that for about $150, uh, uh, which in absolute terms isn't much money. But the fact that we only lend $300 makes the interest rate seem very, very high. If we were, for example, not lending $300 but lending $3,000 for that $150, interest rate would be very, very small. So there's a, what I would call a mathematical relationship, and you can see this in, in, in websites like the Mixed Market, which is a great source of information about the industry of what is called the cost curve. So the smaller the loan size, the larger the interest rate tends to be. Uh, if you go to the mixed market, which is a collection of uh, actually several thousand microfinance institutions throughout the world, you might be surprised that interest rates between non-for-profit and for-profit are not all that different. In fact, statistically, non-for-profits tend to charge higher interest rates than for-profit institutions. And it has to do, in many cases, with scale. Same thing in Compartamos. As Compartamos has grown to serve you know, 2.5 million customers, we've been able to drop our interest rates to half of what they were when we started out. And that's the benefit of, of, of scale. And sometimes uh, some NGOs, and there are some exceptions to that, uh, don't have that benefit of, of growth and, and scale. Any other pressing questions? We have one more 
Time for one more question back there. Can we pass a microphone to the gentleman? Hello, this, can you hear? Okay. Uh, this question is for Mr. Suarez uh, about turning the nixtamal process or producers that use the nixtamal process into the Maseca process. Mm -hmm. How hard is the sale in Mexico itself compared the sale from your perspective, convincing them to go to your product in, in terms of the sale when you do it in the States? Is it a cultural thing? Is it well, more than the cultural thing, I think it's a political thing. <laughs> uh, and the reason is because in, uh, in Mexico, it, it's different. I mean, the corn is uh, sometimes used subsidized, so it's uh, government-related and regulated, and there is a lot of organizations that are uh, the Nixtamaleros, which are very strong, very, very, very group of interests, and, and really it's more... We, we consider it's more government-related or more political, if you want to put it that way. So it is harder to really do it in Mexico than it is here in the States. It, it's definitely much. And that's why here in the United States, that's why we sell a lot of tortillas. If you look at it in, in Mexico, in Mexico we don't sell that much tortillas. What we sell a lot is really the corn flour to make tortillas, but not, but not that. And we work with the people that make uh, them, that make that, that use the corn flour the same way that we're doing here. We help them to finance the machine. We help them to develop, and we really help them to really be more a entrepreneur and and a very more more, more um, modernized industry. But that's a, a totally different. We are going to be starting doing uh, doing a little bit of more tortillas. In order, really, especially in the south, that that's in, in the south part of Mexico, which is harder than what it is, was with the poverty levels are really even harder. And that's what we're going to try to re really do the same model that we're using in the States. I wish we had more time to continue. Obviously, there's a lot of interest, and you really, uh, your talk just opened a lot of eyes, I think, to a lot of things that maybe seemed obvious, but a lot of people don't. You know, now you kind of laid it out in front of us. So thank you very much for your insightful presentations and we would like to ask the audience to uh, we wanted to give you a 15 minute break but we're running a little bit behind so we would ask you if you would just take a quick um, seven minute break and be back here ready to finish up the last panel thank you you've been listening to a podcast by university of california television for more information about this program or uctv visit us online at uctv.tv